Welcome to this edition of Code Talk, the concise podcast to help you get to know the National Electrical Code. I'm your host, Frank Seiler, based in Spokane, Washington, and today's episode is a special episode dedicated to some of the most important changes to the 2020 NEC, and it's from the perspective of cost, installation cost. There are a good number of changes, but this is the focus today. So here we go. By the way, if you're one of those people that hangs on to their old code book for whatever nostalgia's sake or because uh, you've got it all marked up, you've got it tabbed, you know where everything is, this is not like the last three code cycles where you could just make a few notes on the margin, get a few updates, insert a couple of pages, and get by. You will need to get a 2020 NEC. This was a really busy code change cycle, both structurally some of the articles have been completely rewritten. None of your numbers will match. Article 310, conductors, is such an article. And the other reason is there are some major changes to requirements. So in today's episode, I want to address seven impact changes. That is, changes that are going to cost money, that are going to mainly focus on two areas in the codebook. In Article 210, some major changes to GFCI protection. And in Article 230, some large changes to service entrance requirements. And so those seven major changes are today's discussion. Uh, there are plenty of others. We'll try to catch those on future episodes. All right, then. Impact change number one. And this is my list, by the way. So you'll have different articles, different places that you're going to read. You know, the top 20, top 25, top 50 changes. And... That's from the perspective of the author. I'm going to focus on seven major items. So impact change number one, 210.8a, dwelling unit GFCI protection. So what have we done in the past? Well, in the past, we had 10 locations around dwelling units, and these were all 15 or 20 ampere receptacle outlets at the 120 volt level. And we've had that methodology for many, many code cycles. However, this time around, it is changing. It was expanded to require GFCI protection for all receptacles rated 125 through 250 volts, supplied by branch circuits that are rated 150 volts or less to ground. And then we take a look at the... Uh, uh, receptacles that we have, well, a 240-volt receptacle, that is 120 volts to ground. And there are 11 locations. So these are all locations that previously perhaps we did not GFCI because there were 240 volts, maybe there were 30 amps, things like that. But a lot of cord and plug connected shop equipment in a dwelling unit operates above 120 volts, requires circuits having opacity greater than 20 amps, and these two will require GFCI protection now. Also, the GFCI requirements for dwelling unit basements has been expanded. It used to be that we 
uh, would GFCI the basement if it was unfinished? But as soon as it got finished out, we'd take the GFCI protection away. So those are two major changes inside of 210.8a. One obvious item that comes to mind is the dryer. That's typically cord and plug connected. The locations that service clothes washing uh, are required to be GFCI protected. That's one of the 11 locations. A dryer is 240 volts, 30 amps, but we're no longer limited to 15 and 20 amp, 120 volt receptacles. So the dryer will be GFCI protected. As would be most of my 240 volts in the garage. I have a 240 volt bandsaw and also a couple of 240 volt cord and plug connected heaters. Under the 2020 code, those would require GFCI protection also. Impact change number two, GFCI protection in other than dwelling units. And so here the structure hasn't changed in that it's still the receptacles single phase, 50 amps or less, 150 volts to ground or less, and in three phase, 100 amps or less, 150 volts to ground or less, except two new, new locations were added. So the two new locations are kitchens or areas with a sink and permanent provisions for food preparation and cooking. Previously, we had commercial kitchens as part of the requirements requiring GFCI protection. However, there are some things that didn't fit the definition of a kitchen and yet had some things that were similar, presented the same shock hazards as kitchens. So these places which don't have stoves or ovens for cooking, uh, such as, uh, oh, maybe an ice cream parlor or coffee shop, uh, prep areas within a, um, a restaurant, you know, the salad bar, different places where food items are being prepared. Uh, those are going to be included in the GFCI protections. So that's one of them. The other one has to do with laundry areas and non-dwelling occupancies. GFCI protection will be required for receptacles that supply laundry equipment in a commercial environment. And places that come to mind here are, of course, laundromats, but also laundry facilities in hotels, motels, dormitories, and similar locations. Those two would be affected. Impact change number three, 210.8E, equipment requiring servicing. So we've had something similar in the code for a while. For example, if we had an outside air conditioning unit, there was a receptacle requirement, and being that it was outside, it was GFCI protected. However, there are pieces of equipment that require servicing that are not necessarily in wet or damp locations. Perhaps it's an air handler or a furnace that's in a ceiling location. Perhaps it's in the, in the attic. So those also require a receptacle for servicing, and these will now require GFCI protection. And these are shock hazard concerns that are related to the use of portable hand tools and equipment while servicing the equipment. And that's, that's a valid point. It doesn't necessarily have to be a wet location for a damaged tool to become a shock hazard. And so that's the, the new requirement. Equipment requiring servicing, the service receptacles have to have GFCI protection. 
impact change number four, GFCI protection for outdoor outlets, 210.8F. Now, when it comes to the term outlet, we discussed this in a couple of the early podcasts, the term outlet by itself isn't necessarily a cord and plug connection. If it says receptacle outlet, that's a cord and plug connection. But the term outlet is merely the connection to utilization equipment. And so I've got a bunch of lighting outlets in my office. They're not cord and plug connected. They are hardwired. The term outlet is the connection to utilization equipment, and it may be a hardwired source. So 210.8F, entitled Outdoor Outlets, those can be hardwired connections. So then what is the impact? Well, outlets that supply equipment such as HVAC equipment, heating and cooling equipment, are required to have GFCI protection at dwelling units. Unfortunately, this is a result of a fatality. Faulty air conditioner caused the death of an individual. So this is different than 210.8A. 210.8A for dwelling units is GFCI protection for receptacles. 210.8F is GFCI protection at dwelling units, but it's for outdoor outlets, whether or not they're cord and plug connected. They can be hardwired, and there is an exception, for example, for lighting outlets. Uh, they don't have to be GFCI protected, but all the other equipment will. Impact change number five, surge protection for dwelling unit service equipment. So here we're diving into Article 230. And 230.67 is entitled Surge Protection, or a surge protective device for dwelling unit services. Now, what is that surge protector designed to protect? It's not for your big screen TV. Think about a dwelling unit panel. What do we put in it? With current rules, a lot of GFCI and AFCI protection. These electronic devices uh, are susceptible to surges. And most of the time, when I was still working as a contractor, if I had to go out and repair something having to do with GFCI protection, typically it was because the GFCI had gotten blown out by a surge and it would no longer uh, reset. And so, of course, everything downstream would be would be dead as well. So it makes sense. If we've got breakers that cost $50, $60 a piece, and we've got a, a dozen or more of these breakers inside of a panel, surge protective devices are a really good idea. So 230.67, surge protection, gives a couple of things. First of all, all services supplying dwelling units must be provided with a surge protective device. That's 230.67a. And then B talks about the location. So where can it be? Well, the main rule says that the surge protective device must be an integral part of the service disconnect or be located immediately adjacent to the service disconnect. And then there are uh, some exceptions. So for example, perhaps we've got a, a main breaker device on the outside of the house as our main disconnect and then we run uh, some SER cable into the inside to a sub-panel. This is ahead of any of the branch circuit wiring, so the surge protective device would be permitted to be located in that downstream panel board, because that's where your breakers that you're trying to protect, that's where they're located. 
It also tells us what type the surge protector must be. It says it's a type 1 or a type 2 surge protective device. Well, what is that? A type 1 may actually be located ahead of the overcurrent device that acts as the service disconnect. It can be on the utility side of things. A type 2 is probably the most common. A type 2 has to have overcurrent protection on it, but can be right at the main bus, right at the main disconnect. A type 3 and a type 4, uh, those typically require some wire between the overcurrent device and the surge protective device. Uh, that's meant for equipment downstream. Those are not suitable. So a type 1 or type 2 SPD. It also addresses, well, what happens when we do a service change? A replacement service, where service equipment is replaced, surge protection must be installed. Impact change number six. 230.71 deals with the number of service disconnects. And so for many years, we've had kind of a general rule that a building may have one service and 230.2. And then it gives about four categories of exceptions to this rule. But then each service may have had up to six disconnects. And so while the number six still appears, there is a way or a change in the way that we look at those six disconnects. And it's a major change. The general permission to have up to six service disconnects is gone. It's been deleted. It now lists four different kinds of disconnecting means that are part of listed service equipment. And then in subsection B, it specifies the conditions under which we're allowed to have more than one service disconnect in that equipment. But like I mentioned, that general rule that allows us to have six disconnects, that's been deleted. Now, in some cases, we can still work with that. What do we still have there? Well, two to six service disconnecting means may be one of four different items. The service disconnects may be in separate enclosures. So perhaps we have a meter, a gutter, and then individual disconnecting means that come off of that gutter. Each of the disconnects, each of the overcurrent protection is a separate enclosure. So separate enclosures with a main service disconnecting means in each enclosure. Perhaps we have a large installation, maybe a large panel board, maybe a 1200 amp service or something like that. Panel boards can have up to six mains where each of the main services is within each of the panel board or switchboard locations. So each of the separate vertical sections has to have barriers separating each section. Or we might have a piece of switchgear or metering center where each disconnect is housed in a separate compartment. And so while we still have the ability to give six disconnects for a service, the way that we've done it in the past, um, such as having gangable meters, that's, that's gone. That's no longer there. And the reason for that is kind of obvious when you think about some of the things that we would have to do as an electrician. Uh, perhaps we've got a, uh, a large metering section, and there are three or four meters in each metering section. The bus behind it is live. It's unguarded. And we're adding a feeder or a new service location to that, uh, that bus bar. 
And so we're exposing ourselves to all of the energy that's present there without being able to shut the system down. So this revision is really there to comply with some of the rules that we have in our sister document, NFPA 70E, to be able to apply electrical safe work practices in a way that would, uh, would not expose ourselves needlessly to risks. So this, uh, this change is going to affect some of the gear that we've been uh, used to using. Impact change number seven, emergency disconnects for one and two family dwellings. So what is an emergency disconnect? Well, it's one that can be reached quickly by a first responder. Presently, the way our code reads, so in our state, we haven't adopted the 2020 code yet. That's about six months out. But the way that our code is read for many, many years is the metering could be on the outside, and then on the inside, we might have the service disconnect and panel. So other than physically pulling the meter, or perhaps pulling the cutout, there was no way to really disconnect from the outside. Many jurisdictions have had a disconnect rule for the outside uh, for many years, but that wasn't part of the National Electrical Code. And so Code Panel 10, that's the code panel that looks after Article 230, was trying to work with these proposed emergency disconnect rules in a way that made them practical and feasible and still give some options. So this outdoor disconnect is required for one and two family dwellings, and it can be one of three things. It could be the actual service disconnect. We could put a meter main on the outside and, and call it good. We could also take a meter disconnect ahead of the meter and then go downstream and have another disconnect with a main breaker that then acts as the, the real main. Or we could have other listed disconnect switches or circuit breakers on the supply side of each service disconnect that is suitable to service equipment. And so there are several ways that we can accomplish that. But probably the most common way that most installers will do this is by having a meter main on the outside and if it's an inexpensive installation, perhaps having the entire panel on the outside of the structure. So spec houses might go that route. Or if uh, we want to give a little bit more convenience to the homeowner, we might have a meter main on the outside, and then on the inside somewhere have a sub-panel and have all of the rest of the overcurrent devices in that sub-panel. Well, that wraps up a summary of seven important changes that definitely will have a cost impact in the 2020 NEC. And in the near future, we'll try to do another special episode, one that deals with changes that are not so much a cost impact, but certainly we will alter the locations of specific items or the way that we might do the wiring. For our next episode, we plan to be back to our regular structure. Now this time we're going to look at Article 225, Outside Feeders and Branch Circuits. So if you're keeping score, yes, I'm skipping Article 220 for the time being. Honestly, I haven't quite figured out how to do a proper podcast on a topic that deals with calculations. We're talking about formulas and numbers, and it's hard to paint word pictures that give a sense of relevance to that particular topic. 
Now, I hope to eventually figure out a way to do that, but for the time being, we're going to next look at Article 225. It ties in well with the last couple of episodes, and it will also tie into some others, such as overcurrent protection, disconnecting means, ratings, grounding and bonding for separate structures. Now, if you found this episode on a site other than our website, please go to www.inw-training.com for the lecture notes. Until next time, this is your host, Frank Seiler, signing off from Spokane, Washington.